If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast where each week I discuss practical, simple and scientifically backed ways to help you take back control of your mental health, help others, and ultimately live your happiest life. In this episode, I am interviewing Megan Bruneau. Megan Bruneau has been quoted by Deepak Chopra as the millennials therapist. Megan's no-nonsense, relatable voice has garnered over 30 million views and landed appearances on the TV Jake show, Good Morning America, and New York One Morning News. Transparent about her own mental health, eating disorder history, frequent heartaches, and uncertain entrepreneurial life in New York City, Megan's vulnerable and humorous writing style has inspired dozens of viral articles. Megan has a Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology and a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and Social Work. With 12 plus years experience providing crisis support, therapy and coaching, She's a registered clinical counsellor and sees clients globally as a coach. By sharing her personal experiences alongside her professional expertise, Megan seeks to change the way people relate to their inner and outer worlds. In today's episode, Megan and I discuss how to overcome eating disorders, how to help someone with an eating disorder, why positive affirmations are useless, the happiness myth, why mental health labels can be dangerous, and more. Just before we start, I want to thank everyone again who has left a review, subscribed to this podcast, and shared it on social media with friends and family. Not only does your feedback help me improve each episode, but I also love seeing what you guys are learning and what key takeaways you have. It's so encouraging and exciting. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review. This information in this podcast is free. All I ask is that you share and subscribe. One more note before we begin. This interview was recorded remotely, so the audio quality may be a little scratchy in some areas. Now, back to today's episode. Megan, I'm so excited to have you in the studio with me today and to just for you to share your knowledge. I love what you do. I love your approach. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my gosh, Carolyn. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. Oh, wonderful. Okay, Megan, let's start off at the beginning. Can you share a little bit about yourself and why you do what you do and how you got where you are today? Well, you know, currently I'm living in New York City where I work as a therapist and executive coach. And I do kind of like therapy informed coaching, we'll say so goal oriented and whatnot and has a directive element to it. But I I weave in my therapy background. Um, In British Columbia, I'm licensed as a psychotherapist. I have a master's in psychology and uh, have been doing that for many years. And I was brought into that through my own struggles with mental health. So I struggled with eating disorders and depression and anxiety for many years. And, you know, we 
teach what we know. And mm. I think, you know, as therapists, we often go into it to figure ourselves out or, you know, people mm. who are interested in psychology, we're often drawn to it from a desire to alleviate our own suffering. So currently, as I said, that that's what I do. I also write, I speak, I put stuff on Instagram and whatnot. And it's all sort of under the umbrella of helping people just learn a little bit more about where actually their their tendency to avoid emotional discomfort, which we all do as humans, you know, mm -hmm. we, we seek, mm -hmm. seek pleasure and avoid pain, where that, you know, oftentimes unconscious pattern is holding them back, you know, from mm. joy or success or both or a relationship and stuff like that. So really, like I help people just gain self awareness and be a little bit kinder to themselves. And we can get into the nuances of that. Uh, I specialize in perfectionism and everything that falls under that umbrella. So depression, eating disorders, anxiety, you know, and all, all sorts of other ways that it trickles into our businesses and our day to day life. And I have been in New York for about five years. That was kind of my own so one of my taglines is like, you know, do the shit that scares you. And that mm. was for me, you know, the shit that scared me because I realized in, in Vancouver where I was living at the time, I wasn't really pushing myself out of my own comfort zone while I was, you know, teaching people how to follow their dreams and, you know, do the things that scared them. So the last five years have been both really incredible for me professionally, but also personally and spiritually. It's, it's yeah, I, I'm sort of on my own journey as well, always and share that on social media oh that's amazing i love that you used that you've really summarized that so well and and i love your statement about the fact that people go into the helping industry because they want to help people and in general i find people want to help people so it's really great it's just great what you're doing so you have a great on your website this the first statement that pops up and i love it is screw positive thinking and affirmations and get ready for a more sustainable <laughs> approach to life's messiness. I love that because I teach against positive affirmations. I'm not the biggest fan. I think it's like a band-aid approach and, yes. you know, that's so ineffective and, you know, it can actually be very harmful to one's mental health. Talk about that. Talk about your view. Totally. On... Oh, I love that we're on the same page with that. Yes, That's totally. like, It's always nice when I meet other practitioners who, who have the same kind of ethos. I agree. You know, look, I mean, I think there are, people for, you know, whom positive affirmations are effective. Um, that's not me. That's not any of the clients I've worked with, you know, in the past, but I imagine, you know, they have to do something for someone or else they wouldn't continue to exist. But, you know, by and large, I've found that positive affirmations, um, and, you know, positive thinking and this kind of stuff, it often actually creates a lot of shame for people. And like you said, mm. like the band-aid approach maybe keeps them in some place of, of denial or actually prevents them from acknowledging like the stuff underneath. You know, I practice largely from compassion-focused therapy approach, which is uh, like Kristen Neff and Paul Gilbert origins and trickles into like ACT, mm. you know, DBT and stuff like that. And so really like the kind of underlying belief of or the underlying uh, mission, I suppose, of compassion focused therapy is not to have people be like, I'm perfect. I'm beautiful. Mm. I'm great. I'm mm. successful. You know, it, it's actually to say, hey, I, I'm imperfect, like like everyone else. That is a human condition. You know, mm. I like it is what makes me human is the fact that I'm imperfect and I'm learning and I'm going to fail and I'm going to mess up. And, you know, I'm going to feel difficult emotions and my body is not going to be perfect and my appearance isn't going to be perfect. And I am still lovable and I'm still worthy. You know, that is OK, because really with like with the positive affirmations, we oftentimes perpetuate this idea that we're supposed 
to be perfect and we're supposed to be happy all the time and we're supposed to, you know, be uh, great at everything we do. And it doesn't actually leave a lot of room for working through the shame that is perpetuating a lot of the, you know, quote unquote dysfunction or unserving habits or depression or mental health stuff that's going on for people. The other reason that I find positive affirmations and positive thinking can be really unhelpful for people is because it often creates uh, what we call like secondary emotions or in Buddhism, the second arrow for Mm. people when they're having what we call a primary emotion, which is an evolutionarily adaptive response to a situation. So if someone is feeling, you know, anxiety or sadness, or, you know, they've had their heart broken recently, or they're nervous about an upcoming podcast interview, we'll say, Mm -hmm, you know, like mm -hmm. if there's something that they're feeling and it's really like a signal just to show that they care and reminding them to prepare or showing how much they valued a relationship and, you know, very normal human responses to Mm. their environment. Mm. When we say, well, just be positive or, you know, say to yourself, like, I'm better than, you know, he was or something like that. It can often be really invalidating. And, you know, you know, as a, as a therapist, like, Mm one of the least helpful things we can do for our clients or, you know, people we care about is to invalidate their emotional Mm. experience and their Mm. experience in general. So I found that, you know, oftentimes when people are told to just be positive or just be grateful for what they have, you know, Mm. or, you know, look in the mirror and say you're beautiful. It feels inauthentic. And then it also can create shame. This episode is brought to you by Seed, a scientifically validated next-generation probiotic. More and more research is showing the importance of a healthy gut for optimal mental and brain health. Because a healthy gut is so important, I have really put some time and effort into researching the best probiotic for myself and my family. And Seed was a clear winner for all of us. Seed's daily symbiotic contains 24 unique strains of beneficial bacteria and three powerful prebiotic compounds that have been clinically studied to deliver a wide range of benefits. I have always struggled with bloating, but since taking Seed's Daily Symbiotic, I have really noticed a big improvement in my digestion. I don't get that uncomfortable bloat after each meal. I cannot recommend Seed enough. And just for my listeners, Seed is offering 15% off your first month of the Daily Symbiotic. Just visit seed.com and use the code MENTALMESS. The link and details will also be in the show notes. Mm, oh, that's so well explained. I agree with you. It creates this inauthenticity and shame and, and you're kind of living up to someone else's kind of value. And, you know, the whole happiness industry is just driving us. And, you know, you mentioned the happiness industry. I don't know if you've, if you've read any of Will Davies' work and he talks about how the happiness industry is just driving us in the wrong direction. And oh, you, I haven't, but I love that you are able to describe the happiness industry because it's just like the diet industry. I mean, it's, it truly is an industry. It is an industry. And do you find that that is having a negative influence on your patients? This kind of having to be almost, and then if you are unhappy, it's medicalized. So if you said for five minutes, oh gosh, you've, you know, there's a sickness. Oh my gosh. Exactly. No, I just, I'm like, I'm like loving everything you're saying. It's, it's, yeah, just, I'm like invigorated. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, a couple of things you mentioned there. One, it's medicalized, or I often say pathologized, like Mm -hmm. human emotions have become pathologized. So yes, if a person feels sad, or if they feel anxious, all of a sudden, they have an anxiety disorder, or they have depression, and they should be taking medication. And so I think both, you know, this perpetuates overprescription. And again, like, I'm not against pharmaceuticals, but like, 
we are a grossly overmedicated, overprescribed society. And, mm-hmm. you know, too quickly we jump to medication as a, a solve or, you know, the solution for, again, someone's like n- normal human emotions that actually may be a signal that there's something else going on, right? So there's that element. And then, yes, it's an industry. And I often liken it to the diet industry because, you know, I do a lot of work in eating disorders and mm-hmm. so much of that is perpetuated, influenced and perpetuated by the diet industry and diet culture. And it's this belief like that's now sort of spattered all over social media that like, yes, for for the diet industry, it's, you know, you're supposed to be thin and, you know, all the things that come along with that. Mm -hmm. But for the happiness industry, it's like, yeah, you're just supposed to be positive every day and Mm. always be feeling good. And so what happens is a lot of people then think, well, I'm doing something wrong. You know, Mm. I'm not like totally happy all the time and therefore I should buy this book or I should go see this coach who charges me, you know, $10,000 a session Mm -hmm. or, you know, I should, I should be joining this group or I should be doing this thing. And they feel like they're failing. And so ironically, the happiness industry actually contributes to a lot of like dissatisfaction, people believing that like they just need to do a little bit more work and, you know, personal growth or another course or read a new another book. And they'll finally get to a place where they're like happy with themselves all the time and with life all the time and never feel difficult emotions. Yeah. And walk around with a you know crazy smile on your face and pretend everything's yeah. fine and then everything good would be attracted to you. And it's just such an unrealistic part of life. And you miss out so much on who you are as a person if you don't face those deep, dark things that are so painful to face. But that's where you find your solutions and that's where you grow. Totally. And you know, it's, and I love that that seems to be the approach that you're adopting as well. It's, it's more yeah. sustainable, isn't it? Totally. Well, and it's also, I mean, like, you know, this as you described, walking around with your smile on your face all the time, which generally isn't, I mean, it's definitely not realistic, but it's usually not authentic for people as well. That really disconnects people, you know, like, like, I, I imagine you're a Brene Brown fan. I mean, I think most people who kind of do this work are. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, vulnerability is what creates connection, you know, our connection exactly. occurs in like having you know, emotions that aren't always just like happiness and perfection. And if you think about that person, if you think about like your friends or the people you've been drawn to or the intimate conversations you've had, it's very rare that they've come out of someone saying like, I'm great and I'm perfect and everything's great in my life. And, you know, my relationship's perfect and I love myself and I feel great about like myself physically and my career is going perfectly. And, you know, all my friendships are are intact, you know, like, like that's not how we connect. We connect with others by being able to share in like some of the common human struggles that we go through through. And, you know, like you said, yes, being able to actually do the deeper work and approach our shadow sides or the parts of ourselves that we don't necessarily love. And we don't have to get to a point where we love those parts of ourselves. It's more about being able to just accept them and acknowledge that like, yes, you're an imperfect human being. Of course you are. Everyone is. And you're Mm. still worthy of love and connection. And so when there's that belief that we have to be happy before we're deserving of like love, you know, it's the same thing. It's like we have to be thin or we have to have like, you know, X dollars in our bank account or we have to own a home or we have to be married or we have to like, you know, all of these very like, you know, socially reinforced, social media reinforced expectations and norms that are part of like this script that we're supposed mm. to follow. I use script in air quotes there. Like that just contributes to people believing that they're failing in life and they're not enough and they're doing it wrong. When that's kind of how everybody feels as a result of media and marketing and stuff like that. Exactly. And it's also, there's a lot of research showing that that's contributing to the suicide epidemic because, you know, keeping up with literally those rules, keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with this false narrative that we've got to be happy all the time, which is an impossible narrative. And then people are suppressing their issues. And, 
it doesn't go away. If you don't deal with your stuff, it goes in your body, it goes in your brain, it's yes. in your mind. It doesn't go away. So it's going to explode. And you know, this is what people are not being told. And a lot of the work that I do is around that as well. And we do clinical trials, I do a lot of clinical trials and things. And we are finding that as soon as you help people to, the three things that I always say, and, and I think this kind of is very much in alignment with what you're doing, is that we've got to embrace, we've got to process, and we've got to reconceptualize. And if we don't yes. use our signals of our brain and our body or the emotional physical warning signals to embrace, process, and reconceptualize, we get stuck. And I hear you saying the same thing. If you're just using different words, you're saying the same thing. And I see that from my clinical trials, that when you help a person mind manage, when you help them embrace, process, and reconceptualize, they change. They change on every single level. Yes. And part of that change is not a smiley, happy face the whole time. It is actually recognizing that life is tough, but you learn to manage the toughness. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's that that saying sort of what we resist persists. And so many people, you know, they want to resist going to these dark, scary places, which like, you know, on the one hand is understandable if someone doesn't have a lot of support. And if they're operating within the system that says, you know, if you're sad or if you're anxious, you're broken or you're bad or you're failing in some Mm. way. So, of course, someone is going to try to avoid that, you know, and at the same time, it is very much through that process of learning that, yes, exactly what you said. I mean, this is kind of like the Buddhist approach or the spiritual approach, which Mm -hmm. by the way, like I think spirituality and psychology, you know, should Mm -hmm. always really go together. We can't really have one without the other, but ultimately realizing that like, yeah, you're never, no matter how many books you read, no matter how Mm -hmm. many ayahuasca ceremonies you do, no matter how much therapy you have, you know, no matter how well you get to know yourself, you're still going to experience pain as long as you're alive. That's kind of like Susan David's work. She wrote on, you know, emotional agility. It's a great book. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of idea that's like, okay, so it's not about trying to reach this place where you are eternally happy. It's Mm -hmm. about coming to know yourself well enough and become like internally and externally resourced enough so that when life happens, because it will, you know, when you lose people and you have disappointments Mm -hmm. and frustrations, and, you know, anger bubbles up and hurt and resentment and shame and all that kind of stuff, you're able to recognize it and you're able to be, you know, resilient to it or respond to it in a way that is is serving for you. So that's kind of like the hack. I think so many people are trying to get to this place where they're like, if I just do this thing or if I buy this thing or if I change my body in this way or if I, you know, have this accolade or if I get, you know, 100,000 Instagram followers or, you know, if I say I love myself in front of the mirror enough times, I'm never going to feel shame again, or I'm never going to feel anxiety again, or I'm never going to feel anger again. And that's just unrealistic. And so part of like what I try to do, especially like on social media and whatnot, is be transparent about the fact that like, yeah, I mean, I've been dedicated to this work for most of my life at this Mm -hmm. point. And, you know, I still have dark periods and I still, you know, have pain. And, Mm. you know, there's certain like, you know, challenges in my life that there aren't solutions for per se. And it's about learning to live alongside them. And it's okay. You you can have room for both joy and like a contented life or a content life in which, you know, you feel grateful and feel really aligned and like you're fully engaged, you know, as, as much as is realistic. And there's still room for all of these difficult emotions that we're going to cope with or or learn to cope with, ideally, you know, until we die. Let me be honest with you all for a second right now. Finding the perfect fitting bra that is also comfortable has been a struggle. I'm sure many of you can relate. But there is a solution and one I'm so excited to share with you all. Third love. Third Love uses the measurements of millions of women to design bras with all their comfort and support and bras come in over 80 sizes, including half cups. To find your perfect fit, all you have to do is take their online fit finder quiz. 
answer a few simple questions, and Third Love will help you find the styles that fit your body best. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash drleaf now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. The link will also be in the show notes. You've explained that beautifully. I said you're preaching to the choir here. You've just summarized it so well. So thank you for that. This, my, my head's got all these, I've got a million questions going through my head and I'm thinking, okay, this is this is a long <laughs> conversation. So we're definitely going to have to do a few more of these. So, yeah. okay, I want you to talk about the eating disorder because I think that's so important. But before we do, just very quickly, what are some of the major issues that people come to you with? Do you think there's a trend? And I'm asking a lot of people this question because I'm picking up a trend and I'm very interested yeah. to see if you picking up a trend? Yeah, I mean, I think like largely, um, you know, the overarching trend is shame. Like, and I think mm. it's hard for people to identify that per se, because oftentimes they haven't realized that that's actually like what's at the root of their pain. Shame. Wow. It manifests as like perfectionism, which again is sort of like just the way of coping with shame, but it manifests as anxiety and it manifests as depression and it manifests as like an addiction. Yes, I have to interrupt you there because that is so yeah. good what you just said, that you're finding that the major trend is shame. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I totally agree with you. And interestingly enough, that's the most commonly written topic in the Christian arena is about shame and guilt wow. and condemnation, which is very interesting. And yes. then how you said that that manifests as perfectionism and constant anxiety, you know, and you kind of think, why do people feel so ashamed and what can you do about it? P- pick up on that. I think that's brilliant. So, you know, again, so many people, they don't even realize that that's actually at the root of their pain, right? Like mm-hmm. where, where they're, they're operating kind of from what we spoke about in the last topic, which is like, if I just get to this place, mm. if I just do this thing, if I just achieve this, you know, they might come in for a completely separate, you know, goal or something around their business or something around their weight or like, you know, not that I do any type of weight loss work with people, but they come in and, you know, have some sort of an eating disorder or an addiction mm. of some mm. sort and they're, they're numbing their difficult emotions. And so there's a belief that both like, they're not living their life in the way that they should be living it according to, again, those societal scripts that we're surrounded by in mm. media and social media. And also that they're kind of like fundamentally flawed and unlovable. And they've got this like these dark secrets and this shadow side that like no one could ever accept. And they've got to get rid of that rather than learn to accept it mm. and then, you know, kind of embrace it type thing. So I think like, the shame piece, I think it's multifaceted. And I think that part of it is very much, you know, the, the society we exist in, you know, particularly mm. as women when it comes to, you know, appearance and stuff like that. But men sure have, I mean, all genders have so much pressure on them to live their life in a way that appears perfect and to be, you know, successful and, you know, popular and like beautiful or handsome or fit or whatever. And so there's all these pressures. And then on top of that, like, aside from these ones we're existing within that have been perpetuated through the narratives that we grow up with from like, you know, Disney movies to Mm -hmm. fairy tales to, you know, rom-coms and again, now very much social media, Mm -hmm. you know, attachment, I think we don't talk enough about attachment theory. And I think we don't Mm -hmm. talk enough about like early childhood attachment. And 
bullying and basically like the early childhood formative experiences that happen for kids, which lay the foundation for how they relate to others and how they relate to themselves. And so for a lot of people, if they didn't have like, you know, which is the majority, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. I know the literature Mm -hmm. says most of us are securely attached. I don't actually agree with that. But Mm -hmm. like, you know, I think the a large majority of people and more and more nowadays, because so many people are growing up in single parent homes, haven't been able to have the luxury of having a caregiver who's who's consistent and, and reliable for probably very understandable reasons. And so the kind of underlying patterning that that can lay for people is the belief that like, you know, I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. I can't trust people. I can't rely on people. That must be because I'm bad. I'm broken. And so, you know, when a child has the option of either being like, you know, I can live with the anxiety that my caregiver is going to, you know, either be here or not be here. And I have no control over that. Instead of feeling that anxiety and having no control, they're going to shift to shame and they're going to internalize the belief. Well, it must be because I'm bad. It must be because I'm not good enough. If I can just be a little bit, you know, if I can be a little bit better of a kid or if I can get better grades or if I can, you know, do better in sports or if I can be thinner or prettier or, you know, more popular or whatever, or quieter or, I don't know, more placating or I can take care of my parent better or something if they're in a parentified role, then I will be enough. Then I will be lovable and I'll be able to like ensure that they're always going to be here for me or mm. that someone will always be here for me. So I hope that wasn't too confusing, but I no, do think that's, like, yeah, you, it makes sense. No, it makes a yeah. lot of sense. And it's, 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 and it goes along with the previous discussion we had as well. We were talking about the whole positive affirmation thing, because essentially it's like the, it's the happiness industry per se, or these, this extrinsically driven value system that's very dominant in our society culturally today. And it's, it's, it's exacerbated by social media, as you say. So it's like, for example, happiness is the one of the most popular courses, as you know, at Yale mm-hmm. and Harvard. People go to go and learn how to be happy, and it's so because it's become distorted. So it's a distorted mm-hmm. value, and and when something's distorted, it will lead to confusion, and confusion will lead to shame. So I totally agree with you. It's you know you've explained that so well. We can't get that feeling of peace from an extrinsic fact it has to come intrinsically and you know I I love what you're saying because I hear you saying that so okay let's talk about eating disorders this is such a major topic as we know I don't have to tell Mm -hmm. you that you know and I'd love you to share your story and I mean everyone knows someone I mean we've all battled with it I've battled with it my kids have battled it's just I think it's just like everyone battles almost I shouldn't say everyone but it's a big issue can you share more about yes. your experience and how did you find healing? And Sure, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, gosh, I could riff on this forever, so I'll, I'll try Go to be succinct. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I've got no time limits here. Ultimately, um, yeah, so, so disordered eating versus eating disorders. I mean, some people differentiate, of course, according to the DSM, you know, which uh, there'll be, you know, new versions put out with different eating disorders now classified as official eating disorders. There, There's a difference between what we might describe as like a clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder. And then there's disordered eating, which is kind of more like just patterns that are not necessarily serving for a person relating to like food and their body and wouldn't be described as like, I don't know, I, I, I don't really try not to use the term healthy just because it's become, it's, it, you know, what does that uh, yeah, even mean? Know. But, um, you know, he- healthy for the mind, I suppose, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it's not mm-hmm. ultimately serving for that person. It's, it's isolating, it's causing shame or a result of shame, guilt, that kind of thing. So for me, you know, I think I really struggled with disordered eating, even from like a really young age, like, you know, when I was like probably 10, 11, 12, that kind of thing. I grew up in a home where exercise was really emphasized. Thinness was really emphasized. It was a very fat phobic home. uh, So a lot of comments about other people's bodies who were not considered small bodies or people in larger bodies 
that of course had an impact on me. You know, mm-hmm. I watched my mom growing up getting on and off the scale repeatedly. And, you know, it was very, that was the eighties. Right. So like, mm-hmm. you know, it's an early, early nineties. And so, you know, it was like the low fat movement was mm-hmm. still really prevalent and pervasive. And so, you know, I don't think I had tried, I didn't try butter until I was like, until my dad remarried and, you know, mm-hmm. his, his second wife like introduced me to butter Wow, because we had so much margarine, right? Like that was the oh, thing, right? Gosh, so, terrible. So, mm-hmm. And so, but, you know, ultimately, so that kind of started to lie this foundation. And I did make an association between like, you know, have a lot of shame around the idea that I might be like fat or not mm-hmm. be in a thin body. And so when I got into my teens and like hit puberty and, you know, like most teenagers and teenage mm-hmm. women particularly, you know, I, I gained weight and, you know, started to develop into the body that, you know, I have today. Mm-hmm. But ultimately I, I, because, you know, I got some comments from people about having thunder thighs or, you mm. know, was aware that I gained all this weight. I started to diet, which is usually like the trigger for most eating disorders, mm. right? So, mm-hmm. so not all diets cause eating disorders, but most eating disorders are triggered by a diet. Very, or like a type very of well said. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So basically uh, through this process of restriction and like getting a gym membership and stuff in high school Mm -hmm. and trying to um, start myself basically hoping I would lose weight. Of Mm -hmm. course, the response to that was binging. And that is the response. I mean, this is again, why like the diet industry is just, it sets you up to fail. Diet set you up to fail Mm. because, you know, most people will respond to restriction physiologically with a binge and, and also psychologically, because, you know, when we restrict something, we have a lot of studies to support that, Mm -hmm. you know, we think about it a lot more and we make something off limits. We want it a lot more. Exactly. Abstinence doesn't work. That's the bottom. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Exactly. So, you know, my response to that was binging and then my response to binging was purging. So that mm. was you know, the beginning for me of a relationship to, with bulimia, which mm-hmm. began again as something that like was a response to dieting. But ultimately what it became for me was a coping mechanism because mm. I didn't know how, you know, the shame that I was dealing with and being really self-critical, I didn't have a compassionate relationship to myself and I didn't know how to be with my uncomfortable emotions. And my beliefs around emotions, you know, like I had said earlier, were those of more dominant culture, which is, you know, like, you know, if you feel sad, it means you're weak. If you've, you know, anxiety is Mm. bad. You know, my mom had, had gone through a lot of grief and, you know, had a lot of her own mental health struggles. And so I had like a lot of resentment and negativity around what I perceived as quote unquote weak emotions. Mm. And so I felt those things myself. I, of course, you know, had the same kind of like, you're pathetic. You're so weak, like voice that I, you know, the same types of things that I felt toward my mom when sometimes said to her. And so what I did was I used bulimia, binging and purging and restriction risk ultimately was a cycle as a way of coping with my, my sadness, my grief, my like, you know, confusion about like, why I felt so different, why I thought I was so different from my friends and from everyone else who was happy. And, you know, the the uncomfortable feelings I didn't really know how to deal with and a lot of, you know, resentment and pain toward my dad and, and you know, my brother and stuff like that. And so that became this coping mechanism for me. Mm. So it was, it, 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 which is often the case with eating disorders, right? Mm, like we, is. they are essentially, you know, a way of numbing and, you know, a way of distracting mm. and coping with discomfort. And then, of course, we also can't deny the physiological piece. A lot of times when people are talking about, like, quote, unquote, emotional eating and eating disorders are strictly emotional, like, actually, like, they're, they're very physiological, you mm-hmm, know, and being nourished, like, regularly and enough, of course, mentally and spiritually and all that stuff as well, but nourished physiologically, then they're less likely to get into these cycles of, like, binging and purging and restricting, which is what I was in. So, I dealt with that for many, many years. I kind of like tried to get help a couple of times. It wasn't successful. And then 
actually, when I started doing my master's, ironically, I started mm. working at a gym as a personal trainer, thinking that I would like finally lose the weight to that, mm. you know, I thought that I was like trying to lose because with yeah. bulimia, much as that's a restrictive disorder, oftentimes bulimia leads to weight gain. And so that then during that time, it transformed into anorexia, I guess, clinically. Again, I, I when I use these diagnoses, I mean, yeah. I just want to be careful to, you know, remind people that you don't have to have like a clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder to, you know, deserve help or warrant help. You do not have to be in like an emaciated body, all bodies, you know, struggle with eating disorders and all eating disorders are restrictive disorders of some sort. Right now, I'm drinking my favorite tea from PT, and I'm going to tell you why you should be too. Ever since I discovered PT, I've been obsessed. I now incorporate at least a cup of peak tea into my daily routine, and it's really been increasing my productivity levels while podcasting and traveling. Peak teas are made from organic, high-quality tea leaves and ingredients, sourced from around the world delivering up to 12 times more antioxidants than any other tea. What's better is that they are all triple toxin screened for heavy metals, pesticides and toxic mold. So you know you're getting the best stuff. Not to mention, they taste so amazing. So, have I convinced you to give them a try? Great, because right now they are having a sale... Use the code Dr. Leaf for 10% off at P I Q U E T E A Life forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link will also be in the show notes. And if I may, just to reinforce what you're saying, yeah. you're saying it's everything you're saying is so vitally important, but I just think it's important we um, the approach that and people that listen to my podcast and follow me know that I say this all the time that a label is one of the worst things that I think the best thing that DSM can be used for is firewood or a doorstop. And yes. we just need to be so careful because it locks people in. And the research is showing that when you start labeling people, you're literally knocking years off their life, you know, and oh, so and it doesn't give them the freedom. Yeah you know, ties them in. So we, we know that there's an issue. I mean, having an issue with eating is an issue. We all It's yeah. not something we deny, but we don't need to say now that you're mentally ill because you've been eating it. That just now adds fuel to the fire. Exactly. It's said exactly. that that is a, it's, it's a symptom that there's something going on and it's very common and it's part of a struggle and we all struggle and that just happens to be the story that you struggle. You know, so I try, so, I, you know, I'm saying what you're saying, but I'm just sort of reinforcing it. For no, th- thank you well. for reinforcing that. I completely agree with the labels piece. And, you know, I, I think there's just so much, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but yeah. I mean, I, I think that these labels oftentimes are ways that we avoid, you know, conversations about like gun control, for example. And mm-hmm. we make, we create this idea of like, quote unquote, mental illness when actually, no, this is the common human condition and a response to the society that we're currently trying to survive in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think especially as women in this world, like walking through life, like, of course, we're constantly inundated with messages that we are not enough, you know, mm. that we are, you know, we're not thin enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not young enough, you know, we're not, we're not smiling enough, oh, but maybe we're smiling too much. And, you know, mm. we're not talking enough, but oh, now we're too talkative, like, you know, we're, we're too bitchy, we're, we're too yeah. nice, like, just there's always something, we're too sexy, we're too prudish, like, our society will find a way to, you know, make women believe that they are 
flawed. Yeah, and men so too, right. Particularly when it comes to appearance, because women have been traditionally objectified and viewed as kind of like, you know, baby makers and, and wives or partners to men mm-hmm, who are mm-hmm. the ones that we, you know, adhere to. That's so well said. It's, it's so internalized and so systemic. And, you know, I think mm. so when, when we talk about like the, you know, eating disorders and, you know, how they, you know, develop and how they're so pervasive, every woman, I think, you know, it's very unlikely or unrealistic that I think any woman has walked through life. And then, you know, again, men too, but less so mm-hmm. than any woman has walked through life, like always thinking, you know, everything about me is perfect. And I'm mm-hmm. totally like lovable and acceptable as I am. Mm-hmm. Because again, compared to, you know, airbrushed images and fake exactly. images and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. again, can tangent on that forever. But ultimately, so for me, then as I slipped into, you know, sure, what we'll describe as anorexia, but just an even more like restrictive without as much of the binging and without as much of the purging manifestation of my eating disorder or disordered eating. I've actually struggled with that for like several years while I was doing my master's degree, which is like so ironic. You know, it's like I was I was rock bottom when I was finishing my master's and thinking that, you know, I had gone into psychology basically hoping I would figure this out. And yet, mm. you know, it was really like at my lowest point when I was wow. I was finishing. And so for me, you know, I was really lucky with my recovery. You know, first of all, I mean, I had a lot of privilege, right, which I want to acknowledge. You know, I had the the privilege of, you know, having access to the resources that I, you know, had access to, whether it was, you know, therapy and, and counseling and stuff like that, but also like, being able to actually have enough like time and affluence and cognitive functioning and, you know, being educated and stuff like that in some of these areas, I kind of started to really understand that while I believed I was just like, fine, I quote unquote, finally lost the weight and, you know, was just like really disciplined in my exercise and eating habits. I did know on a a deeper level that like I was struggling and I was constantly filled with anxiety and shame and what happened for me was my boyfriend at the time, who I'd been with for about three years, and I totally thought I was going to marry, he ended up dumping me. And I mm. felt super blindsided by it. Mm. And But what that did for me was it actually kind of sparked my recovery for a number of reasons. Oh, One was because it really dismantled that belief for me that like, if you're thin, you know, no one can hurt you. If you're thin, you'll be lovable because mm. really a lot of times, like that's what we're sold, right? This idea that if you're thin enough, if you have the perfect body, just like if you have the perfect, you know, job or sports car or Instagram followers or mm. whatever, all of these sorts of things, then you'll be invincible, then you'll be lovable. Mm. And so this really Very well said. Thank you. Yeah. So the, that, that dismantled, like, I remember feeling like my world had just shattered. And I remember being like, what? Like they lied. Like I've been living a, like a, in, in a lie. Mm. I was promised, you know, that like, I wouldn't go through what my mom went through if I did this, you know? Mm. And so, you know, he left me, I was absolutely devastated. First, it kind of shattered that belief that if you're thin, you know, no one can hurt you. And then secondly, what it did was it forced me to start to pay attention to my emotions. Because for anyone who's gone through heartbreak or through grief, you know, you know that it's not something you can avoid 24 seven, like you can avoid it a lot, you can do a good job of distracting, but Mm -hmm. it's going to always be there. And you have to eventually turn inward to it. And so for me, you know, finally, one morning, I just remember waking up and being like, oh, okay, sadness, you can be here. Like I'd read um, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron and had these Mm -hmm. sort of, it had been getting a lot of these kind of like Buddhist messages from various different forms of therapy I was studying and practicing. I finally just was like, okay, I guess you can, you can be here. And I didn't realize it at the time, but what I was doing in that moment of like accepting my sadness and not judging it was I was practicing mindfulness. Mm. And that for me was like the window into actually being able to 
not only look at, you know, my grief and heartbreak around, you know, the partner who I thought I was going to be with, but also like so many more emotions that I just suppressed, you know, for most of my life. Mm. And what I did through that process was I started to pay attention to the critical inner voice that had always been at like the helm of my actions and had always been like pressuring me and punishing me and criticizing me. And as a result, I felt constant anxiety and shame. And I started to listen to that a bit more. And I started to realize like, gosh, I'm, I'm really mean to myself Mm -hmm. and not having a partner anymore. You know, I realized I read a lot on the subject and I started, I was doing yoga because I'd actually had so many exercising injuries that my physical therapist kind of like forbade me from any type Mm. of, you know, other workout or other type of movement besides yoga, which I couldn't stand at the time, but was really like a gift. And Mm. like, I don't think I would have, you know, gone through the recovery that I went through had it not been for yoga, because it was through that, that I started to pay attention to my critical inner voice and started to pay attention to like my body and my bodily sensations. And, you know, start to learn how to be with all of the difficult emotions that I had avoided through restriction or binging or purging or overexercising or all of these ways that I'd used my eating disorder to distract myself and cope with pain. So it was a long journey. I mean, look, that mm-hmm. was nine years ago, about, about nine years ago mm-hmm. at this wow. point. Yeah. So it's been a long journey. And look, like recovery takes, it, it takes a long time and it takes a long time for your body to come back to a place where, it trusts you basically, right? Because like what we do through dieting and through disordered eating is we externalize our hunger and satiety cues. So we basically tell our body like, food is scarce. You never know when you're going to get it. We, Mm. our body responds thinking we're in a famine. And so we're not as like, satiated as easily, or we can't trust our hunger in the same way that we might once we know that food is plentiful. And if we're hungry, we'll give ourselves food. So that's sort of like, you know, our ghrelin and leptin and, you know, hunger satiety Mm. hormones. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so for me, it was it was a combination of like really having a lot of like awareness, of course, you know, getting therapy and being able to speak to people and being in, in communities of healing. I remember one community in particular online that was super helpful for me was, I think it was called bulimiahelp.org. And I don't know if it still exists, mm. but I remember like it was just a bunch of blogs. And so it was wow. really helpful to just, you know, read other stories and realize I wasn't alone and work through kind of in stages. And then also the other thing that was helpful for me was I was so isolated through the process. And after that breakup, I I just couldn't bear like the loneliness that I was dealing with. And so I tried to reintegrate into like friend groups I'd isolated myself from through my eating disorder. And that process inevitably of socializing involves eating and drinking, you know? So Mm. through that, I kind of began to like, become less fearful of certain foods that I'd always really feared because, you know, it was sort of exposure therapy. And also like, you know, start to restore my weight and then get to a place where my body wasn't having the same type of physiological starvation response that it had been having for so long. So I can, of course, you know, share more, but I realize I've talked a lot about this. So to tell me if there's anything you want to no, clarify on that really or any. Absolutely brilliant. You're saying so many important things. You know what would be fantastic for you just to summarize the, the steps of your healing? Because you've sure. said, you know, and just the fact that also the time, I mean, it's taken you, it's nine yeah. years now and it's, it's not that it just goes away as I'm listening to you, and it's something that I believe that that my listeners will really appreciate because it's something that I talk about a lot, and that is that you made a choice at some point, and there was a definite trigger when your boyfriend left you. There was a definite trigger for you to use that tremendous sadness to go inside and find what it meant, and in doing that, you but you still chose to do that. You didn't choose to just give up. So there was, even in the midst of that pain, 
you actually made the choice not just to kind of melt with the process. If I don't even know how to explain it, but you actually made a choice. And that choice yeah. was, I'm going to look at my sadness and find out what that means. I don't know if I'm expressing it correctly. No, it's, it's beautiful the way you're expressing it. Sorry, continue. I think that was, I see that as step number one. If you agree or disagree, go ahead. And then maybe just if you could just kind of walk us through, because I know that's so helpful for people. Just Yeah. And I know there's no formula, but there is a process. And, and what were the steps of your process? Sure. Yes. No, happy to break that down. And and yes, like as I said, it's it's been nine years. For years at this point, I felt like I've been in a really good place. And in terms of like recovery, I still, I don't know if I identify more with this belief of like, you know, you're always in recovery or, you know, you're fully recovered. Sometimes, you know, I'm in one camp and sometimes I'm in the other. And I think part of the reason for that is because, you know, there are such like ingrained, you know, thoughts and patterns and they're so perpetuated in the system that we all live in. So again, like, I'm still inundated with messaging that I'm not enough, right? Particularly in New York, particularly in like the wellness community, and, you know, imagery and whatnot that's triggering. And so while I feel really resilient to it nowadays, and, you know, I have come to a really good place, you know, about my body and my relationship to food, and I don't have like, I never could have imagined I would get to this point, truly, you know, there, of course, are still times where I, you know, look in the mirror and I don't love what I see. And, mm. you know, or or times where I have like a thought come up that's like, ooh, like, you know, oh, I, you know, maybe I should try to eat healthier or, you know, mm-hmm. lose weight or whatever. Like, but the difference is, is that nowadays when I hear those thoughts, like I can smile at them and be like, oh, sweetheart, like what's going on? You know, like what's mm. actually happening for you? Is it that you like think you need to lose weight or is it that you're feeling like lonely or rejected by your boyfriend, you know, mm. or is it that you feel like you're not as successful in your career as you believe you should be? Or like, what is like the actual thing that you're dealing with? And then like, let's go even deeper than that and and get to this place of like the shame, which is always at the root for me personally, and be able to just like give myself some compassion and connect to people who love me and remind myself that like my worth is not in my you know appearance or success or whatever so that's just to say we're around the like recovery piece but mm-hmm. as far as my journey itself if I could kind of break it down yes I made the choice and I will say that that choice is something you know you have to make again and again and again and mm-hmm. it is absolutely okay to have backslides and exactly. you know relapses or whatever you want to call them or to have days where you're like I don't know if I can do this because it's really hard to again constantly be like fighting against I guess like patriarchal you know norms Mm. and pressures to that you're supposed to be a different way you know and so for me yes I I I made the choice but I will say it was it was out of desperation like for me I, I often say we do what serves us until it doesn't serve us anymore and so for me you know my eating disorder had served me to a certain point even when I was like you know a teenager struggling with bulimia I often say like I'm grateful to my eating disorder because it was how mm. I coped with my pain instead of you know choosing drugs or you know unprotected mm. sex or something like there were other ways that I could have coped with my pain that mm. may have not allowed for me to still you know be able to go to a good university and you know have a strong social network and like play sports and and feel mm. connected in other ways so I even just sort of served me and it served me and it served me and it served me and then it got to a place where I realized that like this desire to be thin or being thin I guess I should say extremely thin was it wasn't worth the sacrifices anymore like I kind of got to this place where I was like okay I have to make a choice 
I can either be in the body that I'm in right now because, you know, I do already have thin privilege as it is, but as a result of my restriction, I wasn't a, a fairly thin body. And I had this moment where I was like, okay, I can either be in the body that I'm in now, or for people mm-hmm. who maybe don't identify with that, they can think, okay, I can either keep like seeking this ideal, the thin ideal that I have been sold as the answer to all my problems and pain, or, you know, I can live the life, you know, create a life for myself that is meaningful and connected and calm for the most part. And, you know, I can experience these feelings of contentment and love and joy and all of these things that my eating disorder was stealing from me. And what I realized for me personally was that I couldn't have both. I could not okay, have that's like... That's key. That's key. I wanted to stress yeah. that from the choice you went to, the, you, you made a decision about it was affecting your relationships and you didn't like the, that quality of what it was that, what that was doing to your life. Totally. And I didn't like who I'd become, you know, when I was younger, I was, I mean, of course, I I always struggled with like a level of anxiety and perfectionism and was kind of neurotic. And like, today, I I have still have some of those qualities. And I love them about myself. Like, I think it's endearing. I think we all do. Yeah, I think we all have a bit of that. So yeah, totally. And so, you know, I think for me, I, I didn't like that I become this person who didn't really like everything that I did was in service of my eating disorder. I was a slave. Like Mm. I was Christy, Christy Harrison calls it the life thief, which is like a beautiful way of describing it. Mm. Like I was a slave to this, you know, inner voice that was always telling me like, you know, it's like the second I woke up, I was like thinking about like what I was going to eat or not eat and where my exercise was going to fit in. And I was canceling plans so that I could get to the gym. I was, gosh, I worked at the gym, so I had a key to the gym. I remember breaking into the gym in the middle of the night to run on the treadmill because, you know, I'd have an early morning flight the next day and I wasn't sure that I'd be able to work out. Right. Like I was, just shackled to this eating disorder and I was miserable. I was so, so unhappy. And, you know, I'd go for these long runs. I would run for like hours at a time and I would just cry. I'd like listen to psychology podcasts and cry. It was like, like, and you know, I was so unhappy. And so I kind of came to this place where I was like, gosh, like I'm so miserable. The one thing that I thought was going to make me happy, which was like, you know, being with my boyfriend and maybe following this, you know, I thought we were getting married and have our kids and, you Mm. know, like do our, do the things that you're supposed to do. And so when that was taken from me, I was like, I can't be with this pain is so excruciating. I need connection. You know, I need to be around people and I need Mm -hmm. to have like distraction. And so I started doing things that, you know, at the same time I had just finished my master's, as I said. And so I was Mm -hmm. unemployed. Like it was like sort of this, and I couldn't like get a job. I was experiencing all this rejection. So Mm -hmm. I had this like immersion into difficult emotions. And as a result, I was like, what can I do to survive? I, you know, social connection had always been something that had been so meaningful to me, but I'd isolated myself because of my eating disorder. And so I started to reach out. And again, it was out of desperation. It wasn't that I was like, you know, oh, I'm going to be so strong and I'm going to say no to this eating disorder. It was more like, I'm in so much pain. I don't know what else to do. I guess I'm going to have to go to this barbecue and I'm going to have to eat there because I'm reintegrating with these people and I know what they're thinking because the last time they saw me, I was like twice the size and, you know, I have to eat basically. Mm. So there was almost a bit of like social pressure for me, but I, it was, it was healthy for me. It was good. Like that was definitely what I needed. It's kind and, of a painful push. Totally, totally. And and I, I started to experience like through, you know, the regain that I experienced and going through all of that, like my friends still loved me, you know, in fact, like mm. they probably like enjoyed being around me more because I was less anxious and I was less distracted. I could actually be present. And so there was definitely like that was a huge element for me in recovery. So it was like, yes, I guess the decision that I had to make again and again out of desperation, the awareness that like I couldn't have both like if I wanted to actually be engaged with my life and experience happiness and like connection and love and meaning and, you know, be able to a big part of me as well was like I was really wanting to be committed to eating disorder recovery with 
my clients, you know, I wanted Mm. to help them. And so I was like, I want to, you know, practice what I preach basically. And so there was some pressure that I felt in that sense. I didn't want to feel like a fraud. And I felt like I wanted to be able to kind of like walk that path before they did, of course, or Mm. at least alongside them. You know, I think a big part of it for me, a big, a big sort of like inflection point was really learning more about feminism and like Mm, understanding, you know, really embracing feminism more and understanding like that so much of this comes out of, you know, the oppression of women and, you know, Mm. uh, and people of color and, and, you know, and our fat phobic society and really starting to like learn more about that. And I got angry. Like I was like, this is really messed up. Like Mm. we're diet culture is one of the ways that we distract ourselves from what's actually important. And we distract ourselves from like achieving equality. And we believe that we're not good enough to, to speak up, you know, or to fight for what we, we deserve. I am constantly on planes, traveling to conferences and all over the place. And one major problem I used to have was dehydration, which really made me dread flying. Dehydration also made jet lag and headaches so much worse. But ever since using liquid IV electrolytes, flying has become so much more enjoyable. Liquid IV can provide the same hydration as drinking two to three bottles of water. It contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana, and is healthier than traditional sugary sports drinks. No artificial flavors, preservatives like Pedialyte or Gatorade. If you're dehydrated, try Liquid IV. It's the fastest, most efficient way to stay hydrated. Get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code DRLEAF at checkout. That's 25% of anything you order on Liquid IV's website. Just go to liquidiv.com and enter promo code DRLEAF to save 25% and get better hydration. That's liquidiv.com promo code DRLEAF. Don't wait. Start properly hydrating today. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. That topic you just brought up is something we need to have a whole separate podcast about because it's so relevant and it's so important with the whole Me Too movement now as well. That we need to talk about the, you know, how women should see themselves and, you know, kind of there's so many misconceptions around that and it's leading to so many of these issues. And I see this all the time in, you know, I don't practice clinically anymore, but I talk around the world and whatever, but I'm always, people are connecting with me all the time at book tables and social media like yourself. And I do a lot of conferencing and I do a lot of like more sort of private kind of smaller conferences and things. And I tell you, it doesn't matter what profession, what belief system, this is a very consistent problem across the board for women. And I think it's something that would be very good to address. I just wanted to slip that in there that I support what you're saying and how that played a huge part of your recovery. Yes. And it's, it's really, it's unfortunate that there are negative connotations sometimes with the word feminism and there are women Mm. out there or men out there, you know, who don't identify as feminists, but you know, again, probably a separate podcast, but that was really Mm. for me, anger is a helpful emotion in many contexts, right? Anger is saying like an injustice has occurred or, you know, you've been mistreated or a boundary has been crossed. And again, the happiness industry tells us that we shouldn't feel anger. I know, crazy, but it's a huge part of just being a human and of, as you say, progress. You don't grow without that. Totally. And, you know, I mean, violence and aggression and whatnot aren't necessarily helpful, but anger itself is, Mm. was for me very helpful to advocate for myself. Anger is at the root of advocacy. Very good. So good. Say that again. That's so good. 
sure, anger is at the root of advocacy. So mm. that was or it's a step toward advocacy. So for me, feeling anger, I was like, wait, I have been mistreated. Women have, you know, like like our mm. society has been mistreated. The patriarchy has affected men and women, all genders, in a way that leads us to believe that we are not enough in some way. And that's like the root of toxic masculinity and things as well. Mm. Like we all experience this. And th- another and so, good podcast. Another good podcast. Yes, totally. Oh my gosh, we could, maybe we should just have our own podcast. And, I think so. I think so. Yeah, do, more, do a series. But yeah, so so that was helpful. That the anger piece and and really feeling like okay, I'm going to be a champion for this movement. And sometimes it's going to be really and uncomfortable, but I have to walk the walk. I can't just talk the talk. I have to do this because the dissonance I experienced around feeling like a quote unquote fraud was more uncomfortable than, you know, the discomfort I would experience, you know, eating a bagel or something Mm. that like I never allowed myself before. Another piece that was really helpful, like as I walked through the strategies in my recovery was this self-compassion piece. So again, self-compassion is, it's really this idea that I'm imperfect and I'm still lovable. You know, I'm imperfect like everyone else and I'm still lovable as opposed to I'm perfect. So getting away from this idea that like we have to love our bodies and, you know, we have to like think they're great and we have to think we're beautiful. Like, no, it, it's far mm-hmm. more of what we call a body neutrality approach, which is like, mm. okay, my body is a vessel, you know, it's a vehicle. Um, I am so fortunate that I'm able-bodied, you know, currently mm-hmm. and I have my health and not everybody has that privilege. And, you know, I can play sports and I can move and I can walk upstairs and I can squat over a toilet and, you know, recognizing that my body is is more functional than like an object or an ornament, right? Mm. Trying to change my relationship to my body to one where there's just more room for imperfection, for natural imperfection. And, you know, bodies change throughout our lives, you know, and, and of course we're going to age and, and sag and we all do, we're all mm. aging as we speak. Right. And again, that's another exactly. industry is, you know, the anti-aging industry and exactly. telling people that they're not supposed to age either. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so for me, like that, changing my relationship to myself where instead of what perfectionism told me, which was, you know, if and when you're perfect, you will be lovable. And then you can finally relax. It was more this idea. It's like, no, like I'm imperfect and I'm still lovable. You know, I'm still Mm. allowed to be in relationships and I'm still, you know, like I'm allowed to speak, you know, and have a voice and I can love myself. And, you know, and, and again, like not in this way that's like, I love myself. I'm so perfect, but more like, I have an unconditional love for who I am and, and you know, my experience of myself in the same way I would for like, you know, my puppy that, yeah, sometimes mm. like pees on the rug, <laughs> like, exactly. and, right? but, I, but I still love them, you know, or, or the, and, and that same feeling that I get from the puppy who loves me even when I'm, you know, crying or, or not in the best mood or whatever. And so trying to really change my relationship to myself and to my body through self-compassion was really game-changing and a great book for that for anyone wanting to learn more about self-compassion is called Self-Compassion and it's by Kristen Neff and that's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-N-E-F-F and and she's really a champion of that, I don't know, I guess topic or movement. So so that was also really helpful. Um, I'm trying to think of anything. Is there anything you want to ask on that one? Or? No, that's really great because what you've actually done is it almost sounds to me like these tips that you're giving now that helped you heal can actually almost be generalized to helping people deal with any kind of emotion, any kind of emotional signal. You know, I I have an app called Switch that is based on research that I've done over all these years and whatever. And and it's very much around embrace process reconceptualized through neuroscience and brain science and five steps and whatever. And I just love that, you know, the things that you're saying, I'm resonating with absolutely everything. And I think that it's, it's, you know, that you've given tips and techniques that sounds to me like you use in your own life and with your clients to help even reduce stress and anxiety and depression etc. Am I correct that these are general tips that you could apply across the board as well? 
Totally. And, and, you know, another one that I think is really relevant that, again, can be applied across the board is the idea of meaning. So that's kind of the, you know, the more existentialist perspective or existential perspective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, again, particularly as women, when we don't feel a sense of like relevance or belonging or meaning or purpose or whatever term you want to use, what we do is we fall back on the narrative that like, you know, Disney or society or the diet industry has created for us, which is your worth on this earth is dependent on being a mother, a wife, and being thin and beautiful. And so particularly for women who are neither, you know, mothers or wives, but also Mm. women who are both of those things, when we don't have a sense of meaning, whether it's through our career or, again, we we don't see ourselves as like a parent or, you know, a partner or something like that, what are we going to do? What's the one thing that's in our control rather than those other things? It's our weight, you know, it's our appearance. So we're going to fall back on this idea like, okay, I feel worthless or I feel like I'm not a valuable member of society. So what I'll do is I'll find my meaning in weight loss, you know, or in being Mm. thin enough or beautiful enough for that kind of thing. So I think a really significant piece for me in my recovery was, I don't know if I want to say like committing to my career, but putting more of my energy, like putting so much of that energy that I'd put into trying to restrict my body into a size that it wasn't supposed to be Mm -hmm. taking that energy and putting it into like, you know, writing and learning and working with clients and like meaningful work that was so fulfilling and is to this day, of course, so incredibly fulfilling for me and reminding myself like, oh, you know, my purpose or my, my value here is not in my appearance. It's in, you know, the helping people that, that for me was, was kind of my source of meaning. And I think like we all are vulnerable to having existential crises or, you know, falling into depressions and and various addictions if we don't have a sense of meaning. And that doesn't necessarily have to be through one's career. Again, it can be, you know, through connection or parenting or creativity or, you know, whatever a person decides, you know, kind of lights them up and makes them feel alive. But I think that's like a really important point that often gets missed in the recovery literature is, is this idea of like creating a sense of meaning. I love that. And I think it's absolutely vital, relevant and absolutely key in just who we are as humans, because you know, I, I I do a lot of work in also using quantum physics to help us understand ourselves and and life. And, and one of the things that one of the quantum physicists says, which goes along with this meaning thing, just to show you how science and science and spirituality and all the stuff we're talking about are all one and the same thing, is that he talks about how it's not just about you; it's about you in the world. And he uses yeah. terms of quantum waves and love energy and so on. But it's interesting because um, there's also research, and you may have read this at Berkeley that came out of Berkeley, and it's a huge study, but I'm just going to give the synopsis because it kind of sums up what we're saying, what you just said about meaning. And that is that they asked a group of Japanese people from Japan, what is the most important thing? And they said, my part in community. How yes. I can, and they asked Americans the same thing, and it was me, myself, and I, my goals, my vision, yes. etc. So what I'm hearing you say throughout everything you've said today, and if you've, you've focused predominantly on dealing with the, the happiness industry, but dealing with an eating disorder, which I think is vital, and I'm so glad you focused mainly on that. I'm hearing you say that a massive part of your healing was once you made the choice to look at the dark places, was then to reintegrate and to connect, and even your meaning, that meaning came from you being part of a community and you now part of a community that now reaches out and helps others. And there's research showing that when you reach out and help others in the midst of your pain, you increase your own healing by 68%. So by a factor of you actually increase the the factor rate of healing by 68%. So you're doing all these amazing things and you immediately transferring that into other people. So it's just an incredibly 
a beautiful message. Now, we've run out of time, and I definitely don't, haven't finished my conversation with you. So <laughs> I'd like to say that this is part one, and sure. uh, in advance, invite you back for part two. Oh, and I would so, love that. Uh, which would be amazing. So just as we close off, where can people find out more about you and your upcoming book and your practice? And we'll put all of this, obviously, that you're going to say now in the show notes. Sure, of course. Yeah. And and thank you. I mean, it's just been such a great conversation. And I think we could probably talk for hours and hours and hours. So absolutely. absolutely would love to come back for part two. For people who are on Instagram, I mean, you can follow me at Megan J. Bruno. It's M-E-G-A-N. J-B-R-U-N-E-A-U. That's the social media platform I keep up with the most. I mean, I do try to practice what I preach and I don't spend a ton of time on social media because I it's not really good for our mental health, I don't think, or it's not great for mine. Um, you know, I, I do try to keep up with fairly regular posts. My website is just meganbruno.com, M-E-G-A-N-B-R-U-N-E-A-U.com. I'm also on like, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, like all of those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, and, and you can feel free to reach out if you, you know, want to work with me or have questions or want to sign up for my email list and stuff, Megan at meganbruno.com. So M-E-G-A-N at M-E-G-A-N-B-R-U-N-E-A-U.com is my email address. So yeah, people can, can find me pretty much everywhere. I'm, I've got a lot of articles out there. So if you just Google my name, you'll find a lot of stuff. Wonderful. You'll have all that in the show notes. And it's been amazing having you on the show. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Oh. Thank you so much. It was it's very easy with you. I love being able to have these conversations with someone who who is on the same page because it's just that much more invigorating and yeah, energizing to keep fighting for oh. know, fighting for emotions. I agree <laughs> with you. Advocate. I agree with you. No, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Okay, thanks, thanks Carolyn. Sam. If you love listening to my podcasts and want to take your mental health healing journey to the next level then I want to invite you to my 2020 Mental Health Solutions Summit, December 3rd through 5th in Dallas, Texas. The core focus of this conference is to give you simple, practical, applicable, scalable, and scientific solutions to help you take back control of your mental health and to help others and to make impactful changes in your community. You will learn how to manage the day-to-day stressors of life as well as those acute stressors that blindside us. Our goal is to address your most pressing mental health concerns, help you find answers and equip you with the knowledge and the resources that you need to make the change from living a life of barely surviving to one where you are thriving. There will be sessions on addiction recovery, sex and mental health, how to help your child become stress resilient and manage anxiety, how to detox your brain, nutrition tips to boost mental and physical health, and so much more. Early bird tickets are on sale now, so hurry and get yours today before prices increase on March 31st. We also have limited VIP tickets that include special private Q&A sessions with me and meet and greets with myself, and there are discounts available for groups. For more information and to register today, visit drleafconference.com. The link will also be in the show notes. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter 
where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.